Hello, my name is Lucy Ripova and I'm the founder and host of Think with Lucy. I started this podcast to talk with female founders about their startup journey, challenges, successes, lessons learned, and their vision for the future. Why? Only 2% of venture capital funding goes to female founders, despite venture investment being at record highs. This data makes a strong case that gender bias persists among startup investors, and this needs to change. Research shows investing in female founders is extremely profitable. In fact, female founders outperform their male counterparts. So let's get the word out and eliminate the biases and prejudices that are limiting the ability to see the facts. Let's think. I'm in the studio with Hannah Banerjee, co-founder of Clear, the integrated social commerce app for skincare. She's only 22 years old, but has achieved more than most people double her age. She graduated from Imperial and BSc Physics last year, started two companies, went through the Y Combinator Accelerator, and has recently raised 800,000 pre-seed round. So first of all, you are only 22 years old, and I feel like a dinosaur <laughs> compared to you. And you graduated last year from Imperial, right? You didn't drop out. So it's a complicated story. I did drop out, but I also graduated. So I was originally on a four-year integrated master's program, meaning that I was meant to graduate after four years with a master's degree. But instead, I basically dropped out halfway through the final year of the degree. But because I had fulfilled the requirements to graduate with a bachelor's, I graduated with my class where everyone else got a master's, mm -hmm. but I got a bachelor's degree mm -hmm. instead. So can you talk about what you did before dropping out and, and what led to the decision to drop out? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I think not to get too deep, but it starts with childhood. Let's get as deep. It, we have time. <laughs> I mean, as it always does. So I think from a very, very young age, it was my dream to become a physicist. I loved, I loved science and I loved, you know, being able to explain how things in the world around me worked. But... You know, so, so, so I really geared on, like, in my entire education towards being able to do this. When I was studying, I did high-level maths, high-level physics, focused a lot around the sciences. I also did have a pretty wide range of interests outside of academics, but even still, I felt that physics was the perfect combination of the technical skills, like the maths, the, the, the coding, but also almost like a philosophical side of being able to explain things around you. So I was super excited when I got into Imperial to study physics. I knew it was a great department to be in. But to, to kind of get, get, get into the story, from the basically like the first term of my first year, I just didn't enjoy it. It didn't really live up to what I thought it would be. And that wasn't necessarily the fault of the degree. I think it was more that my expectations were different. So I've always been a very conceptual learner. And the Imperial Physics degree is very, very mathematical, especially the first year is pretty much entirely maths. And then because I'd also moved around as a child, I grew up mostly in the UK, but also lived in New Delhi and in Singapore, kept changing curriculums throughout my high school. There were holes in my maths knowledge, which I felt really did kind of put me a little bit behind to start off with. And so that was that was one aspect. And then also when I would talk to the professors, the PhD students, while I, I held and I still hold the utmost respect for them, 
I couldn't quite relate and I didn't feel like my skills were necessarily the skills that they had and, and vice versa. So I had this existential crisis early on in my first year of the degree, basically thinking that, okay, well, I don't think I'm going to become a physicist. So what am I going to do? Mm-hmm. And I think I was fortunate to be you know, at a London university where there's so many opportunities around us. And at that point, I wouldn't say that I was very career focused because I, as I said, like I'd, I was so fixated on going into academia and research that I had no idea like what tech jobs were, what consulting jobs were, what banking Mm -hmm. jobs were. But I knew that they existed and I just applied for anything and everything. I was grossly underqualified for everything. But, you know, I I put in applications as a first year and I was able to land an internship with Morgan Stanley in their tech uh, division. So this was basically a software engineering role within an investment bank. I had no idea what a bank was and I had no idea what a software engineering role yeah. was either. But, you know, that was really my first insight into how larger companies work. And I, and I was interested because it was something that I knew absolutely nothing about. So as I went through my degree, I almost got this buzz off of learning about these different career paths and the different, you know, the, the different opportunities that, that existed. So by the time I was in my third year of the degree, I had interned in software engineering, in banking. I had done a lot of like consulting work, insight programs. I'd done some work in, in hedge funds, trying to understand that kind of line of work as well. And because I had, I think, gone out of my way to attend these insight programs and, and kind of like network with different companies... After my, I think it was after my second year of uni, a guy cold messages me on LinkedIn. And because he can see all of these different career kind of insight programs I've been on, he had actually started a student graduate recruitment based startup. So the idea was you match students with employers. And he was very, very early stage with Isn't it. Isn't it called Hired? Uh, no, so this was called Varsity Careers Hub. Okay. They've since rebranded, I think very recently. Mm-hmm. So, you know, at, at the time, I, had no, I hadn't considered a startup. I was so fixated on working at a big, like, glitzy company that that wasn't really something that I could, you know, at the time thought I would do in my career. But, you know, having had a wide range of interests, I wanted to... Like, I would always have small side projects of my own that I wouldn't take super far. And the type of work involved at this really early stage startup involved it involved me basically going to these insight events, getting employers onboarded to this platform, and then equally around Imperial kind of acting as an evangelist and getting students to sign up. And it just sounded like fun. You mm-hmm. know, it, it, I didn't even see it that much as a career move. It was more like this is a fun project and I'm going to gain experience from it. And I think that was the first job that I've done that I thought, actually, this is how I can add value to the world around me. Like, this is how I can use the education, use the skills that I have, and actually deliver the most value around me. And this is my dream job. It's not necessarily in this company with this team, but this is how I want Mm -hmm. my career to look. The next question was, well, if it's not with this company, then, you know, it's not trivial to just graduate uni and launch a startup and not be reliant on your parents and that was a big thing for me that I wanted to be able to support myself once I finished university so I decided that I was going to start my career in finance Um, that was the route I was already headed on why did you decide for finance you studied physics which is a a perfect degree for you know anyone who wants to do engineering yeah Um, so I mean my conclusion after my software engineering internship was that I'm not a software engineer (laughs) to put it bluntly um I, I didn't enjoy it I think you know that there are parts of it I did enjoy but I found software engineering again a bit too single focused for me I think I'm really a generalist and 
And that was at Morgan Stanley? That, that was at Morgan Stanley, yeah. And I, I also kind of felt like I didn't necessarily love, like, the, the headphones-on kind of culture. I'm, I'm too chatty for that. Like, I love <laughs> socializing yeah. and, and, and kind of getting to know people. And I felt like, you know, and it might have just been the firm, but either way... By the end of that internship, I had decided that being able to code is a great skill and I'm fortunate to have developed that, but this is not the career that I want. But because that was in a banking environment and I had a bit of insight into that side of things, what I realized I had a passion for was was companies and learning how they run. So when I got to sort of the later stages of my degree, the two, and before the startup opportunity came up, the two sort of key paths I was considering, as a lot of grads do, was banking and consulting because they were both company focused. The reason I lent more towards banking than consulting is the team specifically that I was working in and the job I would have had had a lot of kind of more relationship driven work, which I think you would get with a consulting job. But equally, you know, you learn the basics of finance, of accounting, more practical skills. And I, I also just quite liked the, the discipline a job like that gives you. I think the network is fantastic and you meet such bright people who go on to do really fantastic things. And, and I thought it was just a great way to start my career that would open up more opportunities. It would give me the financial stability that if in a couple of years time, I do want to then pursue my job in a startup, I'll have hopefully the network, the skills and the financial means to do so. So that was, that was really the reason that I thought, you know, that was a, a good decision and I didn't have any, any other option at the time. And you didn't choose to pursue banking or consulting eventually? No. Why? <laughs> so, um, you know, I, as I mentioned, I tried all these different things through my degree. And by the time I got to my final year, at the start of my final year, COVID had just hit. So this was the summer of 2020. Mm -hmm. I just finished my banking internship, secured my first full-time job. And I was I was relaxed at this point because mm -hmm. I'd already like got good enough grades in, in the degree. And I thought I'll just enjoy my final year. And given that I'd already had some insight with the previous startup, I thought this this is the perfect time to try my own. There's like no risk associated with it. I can just do it alongside uni mm -hmm. and it will give me good experience for whatever three years down the line when I want to do my own thing. And so I basically just called up a couple of friends and I said, I want to work on a project. I didn't really have an idea, but I started with a team. So one of the, the team members was uh, a, like my flatmate from uni. He's mm -hmm. probably the best developer I know. He's the person I just had coffee with. Um, and another of my friends who'd actually done the Imperial MIT exchange program. And I knew he was very interested in entrepreneurship from his time at MIT. And then there was also a third team member who I had worked on like a previous side project with also at Imperial. So, and they were all engineers? So, so all physicists. Mm -hmm. um, but with the physics degree, you do learn how to code. So we were all technical founders. And we started working together. It was more, you know, of like a, a weird social type thing. Like we didn't really take it super seriously. We came up with an idea almost at random. Um, it was called Quill. Mm -hmm. And it was a meeting notes automation software. So essentially it would it would transcribe your meetings and then it would pull the key insights and, and leave you with action items. And it was a cool idea. I think it is a cool idea. But it was also more of an experience for us to just like learn about, you know, how do you take a project from zero to one? And that's what we did. So about a week into working on Quill, and my reasons for working on this project weren't anything to do with understanding the world of VC or like how any of that works. I just wanted to do this because I knew I'd be good at the job and it was my dream job to do. But my co-founder, who had come back from MIT, he was a lot more well-versed in like 
the who's who of Silicon Valley and, mm-hmm. and, and all of that kind of stuff. And he had mentioned Y Combinator to me. And I had like heard of it. I'd heard of obviously some of the companies that have gone through it, but I didn't really know what it was. So I went to their website. But I was still very much in that frame of mind of just applying to anything and everything, even if I was underqualified for it. And so I decided to put in an application to YC a week into working on Quill. Now, th- like, I don't think I even told the team straight away because like, they, they thought there's no chance of us getting in. Once I did tell them, none of them like, bothered to look over the application yeah. that, I, that I wrote. Cause it so was, what, it was what just... did you put in the application if you didn't really have a product at the time? Yeah, so it, it was just the, <laughs> the promise the of idea. a product. Yeah, it was, it was the idea. It was, in fairness, we had done almost like a lot of theoretical research work on the algorithms themselves because this was a highly technical project and we had quite a lot to show as far as like the the idea and how we were going to build it and we knew there was a market for it as well because this was a space where a lot of competitors especially at that time were popping up and for whatever reason I think they they saw something in our team they saw that you know even though we were all physicists we had a somewhat complementary skill set and honestly like I will never know exactly why we even got through to the next stage of that process but You know, I think part of it was I had filled out so many job applications at this point, like I was probably an expert cover letter writer. And in a way, like it's it's a matter of just selling yourself and communicating clearly, which I, I think I was good at even back then. And that's what got us through to the next stage, because now having, you know, got a little bit more experience and I see founders sending me their YC applications, I realized that so often you don't even really understand what the company does or what the person is building. So just being able to communicate what you're doing in a simple manner, show why you have some kind of insight into this field and why, you know, this is going to be a big company is really the secret, I think, to nailing that application. And, you know, we, we got lucky. I didn't pass it through my own team, let alone any alumni. But when we ended up hearing that we had an interview, it was like a month after I'd submitted the application, we'd all forgotten about it. None of us yeah. like thought there was any possibility it would work out. And we get the email saying that we have an interview. And we were very lucky that we had two months from finding out that we had an interview to actually having it. So we had time to like rectify the situation because all we had was like a research proposal. So the first thing we did was we spoke to a YC alumni. We explained the situation He was grossly unimpressed with us um, because we had made practically no progress. And his resounding advice was like, you just need to launch something. Like, You need to talk to users. You need to write code. You need to, you need to have something to show for this. And I think it was at that point the mindset switched and we started taking it very, very, very seriously. Uh, so I, at this point, you know, I was still enrolled in the degree, but I had also planned very strategically that I would have no modules in term one. I put all my modules in term two. So all I had was my master's thesis. So I didn't have to spend much time on uni work. And I put basically all of my time into Quill. So in that two month period, we managed to build an alpha version of the software. And I think I got it running at around 15 companies on unpaid pilots. But there was... How did you get it to the companies? How did you approach companies? Literally begging and pleading. Like there's there's no no two ways about it. It was going through like LinkedIn, going on Facebook groups, like alum like my school alumni, reaching out to them, asking them mm-hmm. like literally who who do you know that works at a company and yeah. please can you put me in touch? So it was just a lot of like cold messaging, reigniting introductions. And it's not like that's not the fun part, you know, like it's it's not fun, it's not glamorous but chasing people, initially doing customer discovery interviews with them. So 
building that relationship, building the trust. And then once we had an actual product to show for it, again, like re-engaging the same people and saying, okay, like I know we talked about mm -hmm. your meetings previously. Here's what I've built to try and address some of those concerns. Would you mind giving it a try? Were they startups? What what industry were these companies in? So, so they were all tech companies because we wanted people that had stand-ups. So that was like sort of how the, the meeting software was designed and a range. So some were like really small startups. Others were like, we, we actually had someone at like uh, Capital One, so obviously a much larger firm mm. working, uh, sorry, using it within his team. So there was a real range, but honestly, it was like, it was luck. It was whoever was willing to say yes to me. Mm -hmm. I, I, I made them use it. But the problem was that the tech wasn't very good. So, you know, it's, again, it's a nice idea, but the more we got into working on it, the more we realized just how hard building a text summarization tool is. And moreover, as a team of undergrad physicists, and even though we had a, you know, a superstar developer on the team, none of us were machine learning experts. None of us you know, knew the ins and outs of NLP. So we were a little nervous about, realistically, more competitors are entering the market. Do we actually have the technical skills to move faster than these other people, than these PhD students who've specialized in this? The answer was no. The second thing was, when it came to like, again, really thinking about, is this what we want from, from our careers? Like, is this the idea that we're so passionate about that we're going to dedicate the next, you know, Lord knows how many years to working on this? You know, are we meeting experts? Honestly, the answer was no. Like, I was no more passionate about this idea than, than the previous startup. Again, it's that they were both cool ideas, but I didn't feel like I had anything special to offer to it. I didn't have a specific insight around meetings and I had no competitive advantage. Anyone who's been in a meeting knew as much as I did about meetings. And so I was getting like doubts in my mind, as was the rest of the team. And that was before the YC interview? This was before the YC interview. But we were in this kind of dilemma where we already felt like major imposters for even getting an interview with YC. And the last thing we wanted to do was like mess them around and have them lose trust in us. And I don't know, like cancel our interview if, if we said that we were pivoting. So we decided to just like <laughs> ignore our urges, so to speak, and just hammer down on Quill, present it as well as we can and just see what happens. So, so that's what we did. And we, we did prepare a lot. So we had our first interview with them. And the way the YC interviews work is that they're 10 minutes long and they're quick fire questions. So there's no like real pleasantries. There's no like sometimes there's no follow up. But YC do advise you to be available. I think it's for like four to six hours after the initial interview happens in case they do want a follow up or like more details. Is it with one person? So no, it's ours was with three or four and, and they literally just take turns and like quizzing you sometimes one person might know more about your area and lead but it's literally like there's no hi how are you mm -hmm. it's like so what are you working on is like the first question so, so they jump right in and, and as such it's very difficult to know how it's gone because they don't give it like there's no time to process or like think about how they've reacted because they just keep firing questions and once our interview ended like, what questions did you get in the interview It was, so the first one was like, what are you working on? Which we anticipated. The thing is that they didn't understand our one-liner. So they were like, what do you mean? What, what was your one-liner? I think it was like, we're building Quill. Quill summarizes, no, Quill transcribes, summarizes and pulls data insights from your meetings. 
And they were like, what does that mean? Mm -hmm. And I was like, what do you mean? What does that mean? Isn't it obvious? <laughs> yeah. Because we'd done some practice interviews and no one had ever asked us that. So there was a bit of fumbling being like, it will transcribe it. We use these engines. Then we summarize it. Then we give you these data insights, for example. And then finally they understood it. But they looked a little skeptical to begin with. But again, like at this point, I had done so many interviews for various like career positions and I had done them in such a range of industries from banking which I knew relatively little about to consulting which I also knew relatively little about to like trading which I knew absolutely nothing about yeah. and like did an interview so in that sense like I feel like all those experiences were practiced for this interview where honestly those those skills came in useful and I, I don't get too easily rattled in these kinds of situations and so we stayed calm, we answered all the questions, they didn't really like stump us on anything, but equally like I got the vibe that we didn't like a wow them. Like it wasn't like, oh my gosh, we've nailed yeah. this, like we're in, like we're, we've done this. But we knew that we had to be available for the hours following this. And also as a side note, it was our second to last week of term for our degrees. And so like one of my co-founders had exams like every day the next week and, and some exams that week. Like I had all of my master's thesis deadlines at the same time and I was begging, like I, my supervisor was fantastic. So he gave me extensions for the, the next week because I was like, I'm really like, this is a really important mm -hmm. interview. I need to prepare. So, you know, our, our various like um, professors were quite understanding about the situation, but our interview ended up happening. So, so the first one was, it, it was all done in Pacific time because normally YC will fly you out to San Francisco and do it in person. But because of COVID, it was all done remote on Pacific time. So it was quite late that we had the interview. It was around 10 PM. So we had to stay up till around 4 AM in order to like you know, in case they had any follow-ups. The other thing we knew from talking to alumni is that if you're successful, you get a phone call, and if you're unsuccessful, you get an email. So we were there, like, clutching our phones the whole night, and that night we received four emails from YC. So the first one is, what is MSI? Like, are you postgrads? Are you undergrads? Like, how long do you have left of uni? Like, we don't understand what your degree mm -hmm. is. So we explained that. The next question was, how long have you been working on this idea for? And like, how long like, have you really like properly, you know, been focused on it? And how married are you to it? And this is another thing that we'd spoken about. And with it was in one email, those questions? Four different emails? Four, four different emails. Oh. Four different emails. And so we had also like been told that sometimes YC will ask you things to like test you. So they'll throw in like trick questions mm -hmm. to see how much conviction you have. But equally, we'd also heard that for like younger founders, you don't want to appear like stubborn. In fact, being coachable, like being able to take mentorship and feedback is a huge advantage and it's a skill to have. So we were like, are they trying to trick us? Like, do we, like, how mm -hmm. do we respond to this? And ultimately we responded with the truth, which was, we've been working on this properly for two months. We're very early in it. We think that the idea is cool for these reasons. Like we, we think there is something here, but equally we're not opposed to working on something else, which was which really was the situation. And we couldn't tell at that point, like if, you know, even though like we'd had our own concerns about Quill, we were so focused on just nailing this interview that like we'd lost all like thoughts of, of any pivots or anything like mm -hmm. that because we just wanted to do our best in this situation. Then like the next email was like asking us for a demo. So, so I'd mentioned that Quill was transcribing the meeting, like the actual YC interview. Yeah. 
um, which again, they didn't understand. Like I thought that would present as like, wow, they're like so confident mm-hmm. that it's going to be great. And it, and it wasn't great at all. We were so you checked the notes after the meeting y- and it wasn't great. Yeah, it wasn't great. But like, what, what could we do? So we had to send them like... So the- you manually amended <laughs> the notes. <laughs> This was made by Quill. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Quill powered by Ahana.ai. Yeah. Um, and so we, we sent them it and it wasn't very good. Like, it, it you know, what could we do? Um, and then finally, like the last email we receive is around 4 a.m. And it's a long one. And it's basically like the, the, the crux of it was that they liked our team, but they didn't like the idea. And actually, before I forget... The very, very first question they asked us, so I mentioned that we were four people to begin with. Mm-hmm. When university started in October, one of the team members like left the team. And it was basically because like he didn't really want a career in startups. He wanted to focus on the degree and getting a grad job. So it, it was fine. There wasn't like too much to it. But the first question YC asks us, because he was on the application, is where's the fourth guy? <laughs> so, <laughs> that was, yeah, exactly, which is a bit of an awkward uh, opener. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in any case, so, so we get this email saying that they like our team, but they're not convinced about the idea. And they've seen companies try it in the past and it's never really like succeeded. And they don't know why. Like it might be there's not enough demand for like it's not a big enough problem or people aren't willing to pay for it. They weren't sure. And they said, you're so early stage that we don't know if you really have something like new, like a new take on this. So we want to talk to you again in a week. Come up with something better or show us more traction on Quill. And at first we were like... A week is not a long time to show not, more traction. <laughs> it's, it's, and it's also... come up with a new idea. Well, exactly, right? So we were like... Um, <laughs> thank you but also like what do we do Mm -hmm. um and you know like in in all seriousness it's a huge compliment and confidence boost to know that they liked the team which is you know half the battle won but we still had a lot to prove and we had to like figure out what to do and so at that point like I just gave up on my degree I was like (laughs) deadlines aren't happening you know one of my co-founders you can't have that attitude with exams like he has to actually go sit them so he was basically gone for the whole week and then it just came down to, well, what, what do we do? Mm-hmm. And at the time, like, again, as you said, a week isn't that much time to do either. But I felt like we could make more progress on Quill. And specifically, I knew what they were looking for was a paid pilot. And I also knew that I, deep down, like, didn't really believe in Quill. And there were other things that I would rather work on. Like, there were so many other problems, like, I had faced in other aspects of my life that... I had the confidence I could come up with something. And so I decided to do both. I said, I'm going to get more pilots and I'm going to get a paid pilot on Quill. And I'm also going to come up with a new idea. We're going to build a prototype. We're going to do as much initial customer discovery as we can. And we're going to start testing assumptions. That's all all we can do in a week. And so I basically time boxed every single hour of the next week. Like this is the time that we're going to launch Quill on Product Hunt. This is the time that I'm going to brainstorm with my co-founder. At the end of that two hour brainstorm, no matter what, we are going to have an idea. Like we, we can't afford to, to not. Mm-hmm. And so I like took it very, very seriously. And I remember that the second interview was on a Friday and the brainstorm session for the new idea was on a Tuesday. So it was during that brainstorm that, you know, I had always been very open and and as I mentioned you know the relationship I had with my co-founders was very casual very friendly so half the meetings I'd be there with like my face mask complaining about like my acne or the struggles I've had growing up with it 
And so many struggles from like knowing which products to use, knowing whether like the stuff I'm using is even working, dealing with like false information, dealing with an overly marketed industry and like influencers flogging products that don't work. So, so there were a lot of parts of this journey that I knew were kind of broken. And also I, again, just by virtue of being so into it, would spend so much time on like skincare forums, like mainly on Facebook and on Reddit. And like I'd watch all the YouTube videos mm-hmm. in my free time. So I thought, well... There are so many problems that we can like look at here. This is an industry where I know I have a competitive advantage because my skin is terrible and I have dealt with this myself and I'm still dealing with this. And my co-founder who, who I was having the brainstorm with, he you know, had used sort of like wellness apps before, like things like meditation. We both were, were users of things like MyFitnessPal or Strava or like period track. He's a man, he doesn't use a period tracking app, but you know, I was you know, obviously aware of them. And we thought, well, there's nothing really like this for the skincare industry. And particularly like, okay, if we need to synthesize this down into a problem that we're solving, it's hard to know which skincare products to use and it's hard to know if they're working. So what can we build that addresses this problem? The very like version zero of Clear that we came up with, and it's not really exactly what we've built today, was an app that scanned your face and recommended products to you on the market, but it was brand agnostic. So rather than like being affiliated to one brand, we would have like the biggest database of skincare out there and it would just tell you what to use. How does it know what, what my skin is? What yeah, type? So, so, so it would be through like analysis. So that, that again, it was a machine learning project basically where we would have to like build an algorithm to classify your skin type. We'd also do some kind of like onboarding exam type thing, like when you say, you know, the symptoms you have, things like that. And based on that, and as we would grow as a platform, like the the data would get better, hence the recommendations would mm-hmm. get better. That was Did the, you have any experience in computer vision? Not really, no. So <laughs> same problem. But at the same time, like that's that was actually still slightly easier than what the tech required for Quill. So we rolled with this idea in that first week I ended up doing 60 user interviews and this was again begging friends begging family on all these skincare forums literally just like asking anyone to talk Mm -hmm. to me about their skincare routines and we started like testing these assumptions understanding what in this idea looks like it was going to work what wasn't high level things that we learned in that week is that people don't trust AI recommendations the key factor behind a purchasing decision is actually like reviews or seeing what people with skin like you are actually doing but there definitely is a problem with like monitoring your own progress and like figuring out what to use in the first place and that's where we were and we were very honest about that with YC that like this is the idea that we have but we don't have it all figured out but these are the insights that we found already so in that four-day period, did these 60 user interviews, built a landing page, managed to get some signups for it to prove some initial traction for the idea. Uh, our CTO was the, was the one that had exams every day that week. So the exams ended at 12 p.m. on the Friday. From 12 till 8, he built the prototype of, of Clear. And then from ten, from 8 till 10, I did four user demos. And then 10.30 was our interview. What, what did the prototype look like? So <laughs> it was a web app. Uh, and the first thing is like what we wanted to build was a mobile app. But basically it was a web app that you could, it opened your webcam, you would take a picture of your face, then that gets sent to ahana.ai. And I was the back end. Okay. So it was me who's saying, this is the product you should use mm-hmm. to like simulate what the user experience would be like. And that's what we tested with with users. And that's why we discovered no one trusts this kind of stuff. And, and not just because it was me being the back end. We obviously didn't, didn't tell them that. But we found that like when you don't educate and empower your user to understand why they're being suggested something, most of the time they don't trust it, which was a great insight to learn. 
from, from those initial demos. So we did those demos and then we had our second interview and we had been so busy and so focused on just like getting stuff done. We didn't think about like, like what's the format of this interview? Is it going to be with mm -hmm. all the interviewers again? We didn't know. But at, at this point, we didn't like have time to overly prepare for it. We just went ahead. And the second interview was very different. So this one went on for an hour and it was with just one interviewer. And you could tell straight away that the whole kind of pace and the tone was different because she starts by asking us how we are, which is very unusual yeah. for a, a, a YC interview. And she basically goes like, look, you know, we've got time. You t talk to me about what you want to chat about. Like you tell me what you've done. And this is the point where I was like, okay, so we have made more traction on Quill. We managed to get a paid pilot. We've, we went from like 15 to 20 or so pilot programs. And, but then I was also like, but we also have this new idea, which we are super excited by. And even though we were like so early onto it, mm -hmm. I just had a better feeling about it. Cause like, I felt more confident that I knew more about this. And I like, because I experienced it myself for so long that like, I knew that there wasn't a solution out there already. And so I said, like, I want to start by talking about the skincare idea, but I also, at the end, want to make some time for, like, the stuff we've done on Quill. And in this second conversation, I could tell it went better than the first in the sense that, like, she clearly understood that we were diligent. Like, we weren't just trying to, like, lie about what, you know, like, how this was going to be the next billion-dollar idea. We are like, this is the idea. We know there's a problem. We think we're getting closer to the solution. And I think this worked well for us. So anyway, the interview ends and it literally ends with the interviewer being like, all right, so it was great to chat with you. You have my email if you need anything. We're like... Uh, was she a partner? Uh, yeah. So, so she's and we're like... Doesn't sound great. Well, it would be nice to like know if... We <laughs> where do yeah. we stand? And so we were all like kind of buzzed up at this point. So as soon as it ends, like I didn't think to confront her. So I was just like, we, we need to know where we like, have we just been rejected? Like, what's what's the deal? And so I start writing my like angry email. I'm like, you know, so and so like, can you please tell us like know. where we stand? Thankfully, I never sent anything because before I could get around to finishing that, she actually sent us an email like, back being like hey can I jump back on the zoom and at this point it was like midnight we were so tired like we didn't know what was happening and she comes back on and she's like yeah so I just uh, called my colleague and we'd like to offer you a spot on the batch it starts in two weeks incorporate a company in the U.S. open a bank account do you have any questions and we were like one are you sure and two like which <laughs> which, like, which, which, which idea you? like what do you want us to work on and she was like you're the founder, figure it out. And the great thing about YC is you get access to like the partners and other people even before the batch starts. So she was just like, book an office hour, chat with someone about your situation, but it's your job to figure it out. Um, How did your founders, co-founders feel about it? Because so, they're both males, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So this did is they have skin issues as well? Were they passionate about the idea? This is a very interesting question. So... I had two co-founders uh, at that time. One of them was this uh, like amazing software engineer. And the thing is, like for me, I had the option to work in, in these finance companies, but this was my dream. Like not only is it a startup, it's a startup I really care about and like I know about and I feel like I can add more value to. Our CTO, like he didn't like care about skincare. Like, and that was fair enough. That was never the expectation. But equally, 
He didn't really want a job at a startup at that stage in his career. I can't compete with the salary that he's going to get. And that, you know, there's no shame in admitting that if you want like a cushy life, not that his job is easy by any means, but you're not forced to work weekends. Like if you do something wrong, like the whole company is not going to implode. And the startup founder life is not for everyone. And he had the guts to admit it. I could tell something was wrong as soon as we got the acceptance because his face went bright red. And like, I, I know him, I've lived with this guy for like three years. I know him well enough that like <laughs> something's up. Yeah. So he basically had the conversation with me. It was like, I don't know if this is really what I want. And I don't know if I, like, I can leave the degree and turn down my, my job. What was his job offer? So so he'd already had an offer from Facebook and he had got an even better offer from Jane Street. So, so working in a hedge fund in tech. And, and you know, like fair enough to him. He was honest with, with us about that from, from the beginning that, you know, this was a fun project for him, but it wasn't necessarily right for him at that point in his career. And, and to be honest, I think he made the right decision. So, so that was a very amicable parting in that sense. Like I totally like had no hard feelings, if anything, really appreciated his honesty. And I was like willing to give him equity in the company just for like getting us to, to this stage, getting us to, to YC. But I think he felt so guilty that like he wasn't, that he, he didn't ask for anything. Like he asked for nothing. And, and so we're still very, very close friends. But what this did mean is we had just got into YC. They basically told us they like our team and we lose our superstar <laughs> CTO. We've lost a third of our team. And so How I did was, you tell them though? Well, I was terrified. So again, I went back, I, I called some of the YC alumni that like we'd spoken to in the process. And I was like, so <laughs> this just happened. Like we haven't signed the like acceptance documents yet. I guess we probably should tell them that the CTO is like left because they have basically accepted us on mm -hmm. a team basis. And so I, I plucked up the courage and, and the, you know, the, the, the alumni assured me that like this stuff happens all the time. Like it's normal for startups to lose members. They will have seen it before. Yes, like it's super early on, but these things happen. Like you just have to tell them. And so that's what I did. I was terrified, absolutely terrified because this was such an amazing opportunity. And now it was like, can it be taken away from us? So I was, I was like paranoid until the money hit the account because it felt too good to be true. What did they say when you said, oh, we lost our CTO? They said, well, figure it out. Like that, that's always the, the thing. Like, you know, and, and I, I understand why. It's because these problems will keep happening and you, you just have to figure out the solution. So they were like, well, get a contractor, get a new CTO. Like you can build it. There's, there's options. You know, this isn't the end of the company. And, you know, I'm happy to go more into this story as well, but like we made mistakes early on. Like we, we hired a contractor who was like, it was a disaster. We tried to find a new CTO. That was also a disaster. The conclusion of it was that me and my co-founder just like decided to do it ourselves. So this is where it comes back to me saying, I can code. Do I see myself as a software engineer? No, not really. But it was a very valuable skill to have because that's actually what let us build the company. But it was also the fact that like I maintained such a good relationship with the guy that left and like he helped us. Like he didn't necessarily write the code in the same capacity he would if he was CTO, but it meant that I had a, a great friend who can help me make the decisions that I don't know. Like how do I decide how to build the infrastructure? Which languages are optimized to build a product like this? And to have like a friend like that being able to help was it was a huge advantage to have. And so, so anyway, so that was one, one of the founders. And my other co-founder was, was the one that had gone to, to MIT. And for him, I think, I, you know, I, I don't know if he's very much into skincare, 
But this was like a dream come true for him. It was really like the first professional experience he'd really had. And it was in YC. So I think it was like he had a lot of that excitement. And this was like a dream come true for him because like... For me, obviously, getting into YC was was great, but not necessarily because of like the brand and the prestige. It was more that I can actually build a company that I want to, and I don't need to rely on my parents. Like I can do this as a like mm-hmm. an adult supporting myself. I think for him, it was more like the the excitement of like I can't believe this is really happening, and so he was he was delighted. So he and I continued on the team together. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he was uh, uh, studying at MIT. So, yeah, so so he had come back from MIT. He was so he was on the Imperial Exchange program where you le- you go to MIT in your third year, but you complete your master's year, and then you come back to Imperial. You do your fourth year, but you do like third year content yeah. in your fourth year. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so he had to drop out as well. So we both went on an interruption of studies. I very quickly made the decision to leave at that point because I had like done it in such a way that I knew that I could drop out and still get a bachelor's and because I had like these grad jobs lined up I managed to find a way to hedge my risk such that if the startup didn't work out I knew that I would have the security of a job to go to I knew I had the grades for it I had the degree the problem for my co-founder is that actually going to MIT almost like It made it more complicated because even though he has a published master's thesis, he doesn't have a bachelor's thesis. So he doesn't actually have the requirements to graduate either with a bachelor's or an MSI, like the integrated master's. So, you know, he was not entirely comfortable with just dropping his degree. You know, he's worked hard for it, and and that's fair enough. Many people aren't. It's a it's a difficult situation. So he is still on an interruption of studies. He is planning to go back to his degree in January of next year um, to complete it. But you know, it's it's a difficult thing. It's one of the Full challenges. Time? Yeah. So it's it's one of the challenges that mm. that we have as a company. So tell me more about uh, the beginnings. You got in the badge. Yeah. What did you do? Were you looking for a CTO? Were you contracting an agency to build the first prototype? Yeah, so so the beginning of a batch was uh, was a wild time because you know this was like my first day at work as an adult was running my own company in Y Combinator. It was a really surreal experience. So the you know the first step was what do we actually build? Like we we know we have an idea, but we need to synthesize it more, like figure out specifically what that is, and we need to be very thorough with our customer discovery, testing assumptions, and just be user-obsessed. Because that was the mistake we made with Quill. We spent way too long just like chatting with each other and like having our own biases. And then when we launched the product to like these testers, they were like, this is not what we want at all. So we knew not to do that second time around. And so for like the period of January, like the key priorities were one, like by the end of this month, we need to know exactly what problem we're solving and exactly what we need to build. And the second thing was like, yes, addressing this tech issue. And at the time, I thought that the best solution was to hire a contractor and to start the search for a new CTO. Even though me and my co-founder could code, I like neither of us had launched a mobile app before. And I thought that the time required to like learn and like upskill would, you know, YC is such a fast-paced process. We knew that demo day was looming in March. So we had a timer on it. We had three months to like build an app and do all the other stuff. So I started looking for like contractor agencies and I spoke to a bunch and you know, YC people are fantastic. A lot of them shared recommendations. But 
I had also not spent any money at the time. No one was taking a salary. Um, we were just like scared to, to, to spend any money. And so despite having like some more kind of qualified candidates through like reputable agencies, I had a guy who like didn't have a profile picture who reached out to me one day on LinkedIn. <laughs> and I figured, hey, like random LinkedIn mm -hmm. people in the past have been great, you know, so why, why not? And it should have been a red flag in itself that this guy was being like he was he agreed to be a contractor and only be paid if he achieves like the milestones that we agree on together. So in my <laughs> monkey mind, I was like, well, if he doesn't do the work that we've asked him to, we don't lose any money. And I'm so scared of losing money on, on like things that are a waste. So even though this guy like doesn't have a profile picture, he's not turning his camera on in meetings, like he's not comfortable revealing his identity to us. That's like, weird. Yeah, his, um, there were a lot of red flags. Um, did you seek advice on that? We did. So we, we use like an international um, like hiring and compliance platform. And the thing with it is like we were covered legally. So when he was like, I don't want to be paid via this platform. Can you pay me through PayPal? First thing I do is like I talk to our account manager and the account manager is like, you are legally sound. If, if you have written proof that he's asked you for this, it's his problem if he doesn't pay his taxes. And I was like, oh, is this okay? Like, I'm And not you had sure no idea this. if he had the experience to build what you wanted to. Yeah, so, so he claimed that he had 10 years of experience. He claimed he was like from like... He claimed that he was Singaporean from like a, a reputable university there. I lived in Singapore. A big red flag was like his English skills because I know that Singaporeans speak good English. He could not speak English very well. He was mysteriously in the Netherlands and happened to have, like when we asked him, he said he was traveling and got stuck due to COVID, but then he had a Dutch passport. So <laughs> It was. It was. Did you kind see of like, his work, his previous work? Or? No, no, wow. we didn't. We didn't. It was. It was like it, it was comical. To be honest, like in hindsight, I can't believe we did that. Like the first hire was literally like everything. Like he had multiple email addresses with different names. Oh like God. I think. <laughs> I don't know who this guy was. And he wouldn't turn on his camera. We kept asking him to, and he just refused to show us his face. So it was a very shady experience. Yeah. And after like a couple of weeks, we, we ended up paying him like for some work just because like we, you know, like he had done work. It wasn't very good, but he'd done something. And for his time, mm -hmm. like we, we wanted to compensate him. But like we were, we knew that this wasn't yeah. maybe the best decision. Yeah. Simultaneously, we'd started the search for a new CTO. And there were a couple of people that we were thinking of, but we never really like was fully sold on a person. And, and you know, like a founding relationship is so close. We were so early in the journey that we didn't want to take someone that we weren't sure about. So anyway, like what ended up happening um, was... After January, so I had built up this 300-person beta community. Like, I was so focused on just, like, talking to as many people, gaining all the insights, coming to, to the realization that, okay, like, people don't want an app that scans their face. Like, that there needs to be a community. There needs to be, like, a tracking aspect. And it was through a very rigorous assumptions testing process that we landed on, on what we needed to build. But I achieved my goal that at the end of January, I know exactly what we have to build and I know exactly what problem we're solving. How did you build the community? Where did you get the people? Mainly like the Facebook groups. Like that was that was the best place because I was already like in all of them and I'd already like almost built like relationships with people from the last 10 years. So it was it was a matter of, of posting on them and just being like, look, I, I, I literally just want to talk to you about skincare. And, and it was also coming at it 
from an approach, not being like, hey, I'm like a YC startup founder and I'm going to like change the industry. More to just being like, I really, like I myself have suffered with skin issues and I want to understand, you know, do we have shared experiences and what can I do to make this journey easier for you? And and so I actually made some good friends through this process. Like I love talking about skincare. So it was, it was, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of work because some of these calls would go on for like 90 minutes and I'd have like seven or eight of them every day. But it was fantastic and it gave me so much confidence as well because like I, I knew the market so well and, and I knew that I tested assumptions in a very like sort of scientific manner of, of like proving, disproving and you know, part of the process was disproving some of our initial assumptions, but that's great. Like it meant that we hadn't wasted time building a product that no one's gonna use and it meant that we could start building something that we knew like we'd already tested a little bit. So that that's really how like I went about building that initial community was just sheer like time effort chasing people but what ended up happening is so so I continued to do like a lot of this work then I mean that there was still like a lot of admin work like set, setting up the company like mm -hmm. opening a U.S. bank account without being like U.S. citizens why like, did you choose to build a U.S. company not a U.K. based company so, so those are the YC requirements um like I think it's I think it's like Delaware, Singapore, like Cayman Islands, there's certain places that you have to be a company for them to invest. Mm -hmm. What a lot of UK-based YC companies do is they have a UK company and then open like a US parent company and make right. the, the UK one the subsidiary. For us, we didn't actually need a UK company because there were still ways of like hiring ourselves to a US company as the founders. So why spend an extra 10 grand, grand and like waste time with lawyers doing all this legal stuff when there is an easier, cheaper solution available. So we just went with it. We opened the US company, dealt with a lot of the admin work. And then it was it was time to like actually start like building, start designing. Like again, me and my co-founder, we never designed an app before. So he started to like try and learn a bit about UX design. You know, we needed to start setting up like more social pages, like start building the brand as well. So we, we started our Instagram, we made like a promo mm -hmm. video and we were doing a, a lot of this work. Now, the YC batch ends in, so, so there are two batches a year. There's the winter and the summer batch. And the, we were in the winter 21 batch, which runs from January to March. And it, it culminates in demo day, which is kind of like a convention for investors. You go out, you pitch your startup. And normally that like signals the start of you mm -hmm. raising your, your fundraising round. So we were like ready to go for March demo day. Like the plan was that we were going to like build an initial product. And around March, like when demo day happens, we will just about have launched the app. Now, so what was the MVP that you decided to build? So, so it was an app that like you could just about like log your skincare routine. So at the time it was like an app with skincare products on it that you could like add to your routine. So like a period tracker for skincare. There wasn't any like social functionality or anything like that. And yeah, yeah. So that, so that was the initial MVP spec. So what am I tracking at this point? So, so at that point, you're tracking the products you're using and taking pictures of how your skin is changing. So, so that was like, it was very simple. I mean, it's not, not that simple, but, you know, like ba basic in functionality as compared to where we are today. Now, what ended up happening was, um, and, and, you know, in order to build that, it's still not trivial because how do you get a database of products? Like, yeah. how do you get the product pictures, the information, like, you know, and then how do you build out the business model? Like, how do you make money from all of this? So a, a lot of the work I was doing was, was based around that, like, actually figuring out how do we get products on? How do we make money from this? Um, like, how can we convince skincare brands to work with us? So I, I was doing a lot of that stuff. And then about a week before demo day, at this point, like we still had this contractor like mm -hmm. on board doing some stuff. And my co-founder, like neither of us were writing code at the time, 
but like we'd agreed that it wasn't my job to like check the code. The way we were working with the contractor was every day we would have a meeting to describe like what we wanted mm-hmm. him to do that day. And then he would finish his day by sending me like a screen recording of what he'd built. Yeah. And as far as I was concerned, he was on track. Like what he agreed to do in the morning, like it wasn't very good, but he, he did it. Like he did what he said he would do. So I had started taking some investor meetings before demo day happened just to start like gauging interest, like getting ideally getting some early investors on board. And I th- I was telling them, like, yeah, we're going to launch clear in the next week. Like we're, we're almost there. It's like really exciting. And, and the week before, my co-founder messages me and he tends to like, you know, get, get a bit rattled more easily. And he was like, oh, no, this is really bad. I was like, what? Like you're being dramatic, like, what is it? He's like, we don't have an app. And I'm like, what do you mean we don't have an app? He's like, like, we don't have an app. I'm like, calm down, like, okay, I'm sure it's not that bad. Like, I know that you like things to be very perfect, but I'm sure it's fine. Just like, I'll pull the code and I'll check it myself. And when I did, my co-founder indeed was correct that we didn't have an app. To give you an idea, you know, we have... So what was he working on the whole time? So, to... So let's say like we have a feed that you can scroll on. We said, okay, like you're going to build a feed that we can scroll. And he'd send me the video of the feed that scrolled. But if you clicked a button, if you tried to refresh it, the whole thing crashes. So like it, it, it's not responsive. He has built individual pages. None of them link together. Like the app doesn't interact with itself. He's, it's like as good as building screenshots, like static right. screenshots. So we're like, well, we're not launching in the next week. And that then created an added problem of like, what do I now tell investors? Like, this is my first time fundraising, doing it all by myself. I'm going to lose credibility as well. Like, this is horribly embarrassing. And also, what do we do? Like, we don't need to fundraise. And also, like, we hadn't spent very much money. As you can probably tell, yeah. this contractor wasn't super expensive. So we didn't need money. We hadn't spent anything. And this was not the right time for us to fundraise because fundraising is hard at the best of times. We had no product now. We had proven some assumptions, but you know, it's not like we're serial entrepreneurs with like a proven track record. So this was like a disaster, basically. <laughs> I was like, well, uh-oh. Lesson learned. Lesson learned, absolutely. But I think the thing that we were good at is we were very open with our YC partners as like everything was unfolding. And in fairness, they from day one were like, don't hire a contractor. We, we didn't listen because we were like, well, you're saying don't hire a contractor, but also we have like a month to build an app. And we, how do we do this ourselves? So, so you know, it, it was a lesson learned and we kept them in the loop at every stage of it. And it was actually our YC partner who said to us that like, look, you guys are very early stage. You're right. It probably doesn't make sense for you to fundraise. So we can give you the option to defer your fundraising. So if you want to hold off from doing demo day now, but do it in the next batch or the mm-hmm. one after we are giving you that option and they don't give it to everyone because otherwise who wouldn't want six more months to like build out their companies yeah. but they understood the situation that we came from they were very like empathetic and understanding and I think they know like you, you know any founder will mess up we were I mean we we are young we are inexperienced and we we made some mistakes but they kind of gave us that that option to, to say that you know you can do this the slight added complication to this decision was There was an investor that was willing to commit 100K in March. 
but it was on the condition that we fundraised. It was on the condition that we went ahead with the round. And we didn't know if that same 100K would still be there in however many months' mm -hmm. time. And that's a lot. At the time, it doubled our runway. Like, we'd raised 125. But you didn't really need the money. We didn't need it. But equally, like, there's no guarantee at all with fundraising that if we leave it six months that we're going to raise... Yeah. Like, that 100K is going to be there and we're going to have to build that up again. And so it was a bit of a scary decision because we, because like what we could have done is we could have just taken the 100K, not raised a penny more and just gone with it. 225K is like still a decent mm -hmm. amount of money. But like, again, in my heart, I was just like, this is not the right decision. Like, I think that, like, I believe that we can do something. And it was actually when I was having a conversation with another YC founder and like now I'm laughing, that's fine. It's like a year later. At the time, I was not. Yeah. I was pretty distraught about the situation. Uh, and, you know, you, you feel like a bit of a failure, right? Like, you've got into, like, the best accelerator program and, like, what better start could you have? And yet, Demo Day has come. And it's almost like, well, you've proven that you're a young and experienced fan. Like, you've proven that you haven't actually built something. And so a lot of, like, you know, it was a time of a lot of insecurity and a lot of upset, very emotional. But I was talking about this with another founder. And she was just like, wait, you said you've done a physics degree, like you've worked in software, like why have, why aren't you building this? And we had had like little jibes about this from Michael Seibel as well. He was like, you say you're technical founders, but like... You're you, not actually yeah, doing anything technical. You, yeah, you're not building it, so you're not technical founders. And we're like, no, we are, we're just not coding. She's like, then you're not a technical founder. And we got really offended by it. So, <laughs> you know, she was like you're not an idiot, like coding is not rocket science. And you already like the hardest if you knew nothing, if you didn't know how to code at all, but you do. Yes, you've never done this specific framework, but like what you've, you've seen what's happened when you've hired other people. And so at that point, I was like, you know what, she, she's right, like, we can learn. We've seen what, ha what has happened with like, you know, in our search for a new CTO and the contractor situation, that actually, the stuff that we can do is probably going to be better. Yes, we're going to have to spend some time learning, but we had just bought ourselves five months. So the next demo day was in uh, August slash September mm -hmm. of 2021. So at that point, we were like, well, let's give it a try. And if like every week we'll have the conversation, are we lagging behind? We can't be scared of hiring a contractor again. Like even though we've been scarred by the first experience, we also made some mistakes. Like we have re reputable dev shops that we can go to. It means we pay more money, but we have money. Mm -hmm. Like if we need to spend it, if like if we have to spend it, we should. So we then basically spec'd out the MVP again. And this time, like we it was a little more involved. So we wanted to build the app where you could track your routine, but also build in the social functionality such that people had skin tags, so skin types or concerns associated with their profiles. And you could like click on other people's profiles based on finding them if they have the same skin type and see their diary. Cause we wanted to build that transparency and have mm -hmm. like that social um, interaction going on. So that was the spec for the initial MVP. And within one month, and this is where, like, to be honest, again, it was a lot of asking for help, asking for help from our ex-CTO, like, my friends from uni, thankfully, I'm surrounded by people who love coding, yeah. and I, I, you know, that was the time to call in every favor I could, and I did, because it was really, really hard to get it done in that time, but I just spent all day, every day, myself coding, and, and I, I called in every favor I could. So we beta launched to that 300 person community first after a month of coding. And then after two months, we launched publicly. So this was now June, 2021, and it was on time. So we had set ourselves the date of like early June. We launched like a couple of days late and it was fine. The next YC batch runs from June to late August. And we had decided that, okay, we're gonna start the batch with an app out 
and that summer period is going to be just about traction. So you're part of the summer batch. Yeah, so so it's a little like because it's not the the done thing it's mm-hmm. not super well defined but what happens is you are like reassigned partners but you will have at least one of the same partners from before mm-hmm. and normally you form a closer relationship with one because we had four partners mm-hmm. that were like our go-tos in the in the first batch so we got like a new group um you get invited to the same talks and like you get to meet more founders so we kind of got the benefits of two batches even though we were only accepted to one and then we were part of the, the summer 21 demo day and, and we decided that like we don't want to keep delaying this. We will fundraise and just go for it with the summer batch. And the partners like said, you know, they think that we're in a decent position now and like it also makes sense to do so. So the focus for, for the summer was really just like getting the traction. How do we get big user numbers? How do we get good engagement? How do we prove that we've built something people want? And so that was my entire focus of like running incentive schemes, like forming partnerships, like running this like thing. We did the Skinfluencer Challenge, which was another incentive scheme. Again, just like figuring out like what growth hacks can we use and how do we get there? And by the time the fundraise started, uh, which was like early September, we had around 4,000 users, which we'd acquired without a marketing spend. And they were they were active, like 30% of our entire community was using Clear every day, which is oh. like crazy for an mm-hmm. early stage startup. So I like that was my focus. And again, I was so proud of myself by the end of that because I was like, we've actually built a really cool company. Like we tested assumptions so thoroughly. We got such good traction from you know building this that like surely fundraising is going to be a breeze it wasn't can you walk me through the user experience yeah were users using the app yeah uh, absolutely so so the the core feature as i mentioned is is the tracking so a user will download clear they'll go to their diary they'll input the products that they use and they'll take their progress pictures if you like see your doctor or dermatologist you can actually share your clear diary Mm -hmm. directly with them if you want to like not do that and you just want to use it for yourself, you can keep logging your own routine. And we've done it such that you can like autofill it if your routine stays the same because mm-hmm. that happens with a lot of people who use skincare. Then it, that's linked into the social experience I talked about. So you can then kind of like look on a feed where you'll see other people logging their routine and also other people leaving posts. So that could be... So the pictures are public? So the pictures aren't public. The products are public. Pictures are private, unless it's with a medical professional, mm-hmm. in which case you do share the pictures. So, so, so the like diaries are linked into the social experience, such that you were able to find users by skin type and look into their diary mm-hmm. and see what they were actually using. So that, so that was the experience, and we found that like you know about fifty percent of our users were people with like severe skin issues that really were tracking their routines very closely about like the other half of our community were kind of like content creation mm-hmm. type people who loved posting product reviews they love posting updates I mean skincare is a very social thing already um so they weren't like looking to address a problem but they just liked like looking in other people's diaries like having their own diary public so that you know we gained again a lot of really interesting user insights over that period and I was feeling optimistic because I knew our numbers were good and I knew that like we had built this and it was almost like I, I feel like I've proven myself like we've, we've done it So I went into the fundraise, and again, this was my first time fundraising. And I thought, like, you know what? Like, we built something great. Like, I don't need to be too worried about Mm -hmm. this. Little did I know what I was in for. Fundraising was probably one of the hardest parts of the journey so far, and we'd already gone through some pretty bad situations. I think there were just a lot of things that I didn't understand about the process and the way, like, 
particularly like the way the VC world works because mm -hmm. that was one industry I didn't explore when I was a grad. So I didn't understand like how decisions are made, like who has the decision-making power, like how does the process work? And I think had I actually understood more of that stuff going into the fundraise, I could have saved myself a lot of pain during mm -hmm. that process. How did the demo day work? How long is the page? Yeah. What did your slides look like? Yeah, so, so demo day... Um, Every company gets a one-minute pitch. You have one slide and That's then not a you lot. pitch. It's not. Well, the thing is, YC has expanded a lot in the last couple of years as well. So there were around like 350 companies in our batch. And 350 one-minute pitches is a lot. And, and so now Demo Day spans over two days. But still, like one day going through like well over 100 pitches, is it's it's hard to, to concentrate for that long. And so... You know, I think there is a little bit of controversy around like YC's expansion, whether that's good for founders, not good for founders. And in my experience, it's like I think YC is a net positive to society, and it was certainly a huge boost to my own career and my own. It was what really allowed me to start my journey, mm -hmm. my career in a startup. I, I was speaking to investors about Quill before, but YC were the first people that took that bet on me. That meant that I didn't have to start my career in finance. So. You, you have your one minute pitch and like it's done in a, a Zoom webinar type situation. And as the founders, you get a list of all the investors there. And I think there's around 2000 investors that come like a mix of angels, VCs, like the, everyone there. Yeah. And then the, through YC's system, an investor can give you a like, and then you see that as the founder, then the onus is on you to follow up with the investor and basically send them an email being like, hey, thank you mm -hmm. for liking me on demo day. Let's set up a meeting. And, yeah. and normally you'll send them like your blurb to remind them what your company does. Mm -hmm. Did you get any likes? We got around 80 likes on demo day. Is that um, good? Is that bad? So, so here's the thing. You don't really know. Um, right. the, the insight that YC gives you as the founder is how many likes the investor that's liked you has given out in total that day to help you understand who are the investors that are just liking every company and who has specifically like mm -hmm. just liked you. Having talked to other companies, you know, we weren't like necessarily like a hot company. We're not building in like a hot space. Like we're not doing Web3 or whatever things that are going on there. And I assume they got a lot more likes. But looking at other companies that were like at a similar stage, mm -hmm. building similar things, we did really well. I spoke to a couple who kind of got like around the 30, 40 mark. So again, I was like, okay, this this is great. And I had had quite a bit of investor interest before. Part of our kind of like marketing processes are about building in public. I also feel quite strongly that I kind of wish more younger people knew about careers in startups. Like mm -hmm. I was so focused on working at a big company, but actually I think I add more value to society actually going down this career path. And, and at the same time, it's not for everyone, but if you don't like know about it, like... Would you, you know, say Imperial no... is a good university for that? No. <laughs> Is there any good university for that? Probably not. No, no, I, I do think so. I think in general, like the American system is much better for people who want to go into entrepreneurship. I think the problem with Imperial in particular, and, and to be honest, a lot of other UK universities, is that there is no flexibility in what you're studying. It is so domain specific, and especially with, with a subject like physics, that, you know, you're not necessarily building the skills that you need to... To, to build a company. And I think, of course, there's like exceptions to, to the rule and there are some things that Imperial will do well. But I think in general, the UK university system has a long way to go as far as fostering 
an entrepreneurial environment as in like I don't know anyone else who graduated like from a similar degree to me that like chose to go down this path and equally it's because there aren't enough opportunities available um and and that's definitely part of the problem but there is I think a culture of like you know when you do your degree you either go into academia or you go into work in the city and there's and that's it like there there are no other options and and that's not the fault of the students I, I think but I think that the degree in itself, if there was more flexibility and there were more opportunities available for mm-hmm. students to explore different types of careers, I think the talent is there. Like, I think the people are very intelligent and very capable, yeah. but just lack the exposure. And as such, people don't really see I it as a viable path. I think people generally in the UK and in London are more risk averse. Yeah. Versus if you look at Stanford or Harvard or yeah. all these US universities, everyone is doing a startup. Yeah, exactly. And again, like I don't think everyone should do a startup. Like it's yeah. it's not the right path for everyone. Yeah. But like equally, I think we have the opposite problem here where there are so many people that would add a lot of value to the yeah. world if they if they you had the opportunity and, to, and took the risk. So you know, I think I think it's a cultural problem. I think it's like an education system D- difference. I think maybe the UK creates better, maybe a- like academics, even though the US is probably better funded than, mm-hmm. than the UK. So net, it's like pretty equal. But if you want to study something very specific, then the UK undergrad system is better for that because you're not wasting your time doing other stuff. If you find out, like I did in your first year of your degree, that this is not the career that you want, I was extremely proactive and sought out every opportunity I could, but most people don't, which is fair enough. And and as such, like it, it, it's not a positive thing because then people end up in jobs that they don't really love. But like, what what else do you do? So, I think zero yeah. people in my course at LSC went to startups. Yeah, I think all of them went to private equity or hedge funds or investment banks. Yeah. And, and I mean, these, these are great jobs as well, right? Like, they're, they're prestigious. Well, they you make a lot well. of money, but I don't know if, if it's uh, very enjoyable. Yeah, I, I think that that's the thing. And, like, I think it's almost just accepted that you might not love your job. Or, like, yeah. it might be, you know, that you don't have much power. You might just be taking notes for two years. But at the same time, like, there are benefits to those jobs in the sense that there is a clearer career trajectory if you don't yet feel like you're ready to just jump into something, you do gain a lot of those like basic business skills, mm-hmm. communication, yeah. time management. So I think like I'm definitely grateful that I had those internship opportunities. But again, like this is my dream job and I, I can't lie that, you know, I feel so, very lucky. So did you raise any money? Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. So, so despite my, my woes, um, I did end up raising uh, an 800k pre-seed round. It took three months though. So it was, I think I I wrote this somewhere, it was like 160-something investor meetings with a mix of angels, VCs, mm. like US, UK, like Asia. And in the end, like it was it, it was a mixture of VCs and angels that invested. So it was it was great to kind of get that that. So how many investors boost. was that in total? 36. 36. So it was a lot of small checks to begin with and then a couple of larger ones, but we didn't have a lead investor. And this, this was actually a problem because I think in the in the fundraising kind of investment world, having a lead investor is a signal for other investors. Like the key driving factor behind a decision is not how good your company is, it's yeah. who else has invested, which is a shame. Like it's it's one of the things that I really dislike about it. I understand why. I mean, like when you're eva- you have 30 minutes to evaluate a company, that's like less than a year old and you have to figure out if they're going to be mm-hmm. the next unicorn or they're not. Like, I, I get it. It's Investors have a, a really hard job. But equally, you Do know... Your due diligence. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and as the founder, it can be frustrating sometimes to see 
the types of things that do work for successful fundraisers because a lot of it is like the psychological games you play. A lot of it is basic things that I did very naively that I, you know, in hindsight, I would do differently. So for example, when I said how much money I was raising, I said that I'd be raising like a million dollars. Whereas what I should have done is I say I'm raising 500K such that once I hit the 500K threshold, I can change the narrative and say, guys, our round is full. Like there's too much investor interest. So like you got to get in soon. And things like that push investors over the edge and, and sometimes moves the needle. It doesn't make a difference. I might still have actually been setting out to raise that million. So it was things like that, things like not being aggressive enough with like follow-ups. It was doing like a mix of VC meetings right at the beginning when I hadn't raised any money. If I could do things over, I would meet with just angels and like angels who are likely to invest first and then meet with VCs once I already have some money given because like VCs, it's very unlikely that they invest if you have like no other investors. So, so there were all these like strategic things that had no bearing on like the company or what we'd built. But of course, like they're, they're valuable. Like I'm glad that I know them now and I think it'll make the next fundraising process hopefully better because I've, I've learned so much from it. But, but, it, but it, was, it was really difficult. That said, in the end, like, you know, now I look back at that period, it was so stressful and it is very emotionally taxing because you're meeting with like, you know, during the midst of it, I was meeting with around 10 investors a day you give the same story the same pitch you get grilled for 30 minutes in between meetings you're going to get rejection emails for the dumbest of like an investor never wants to say no to yeah. you either yeah. so they'll say like oh you're too early or like oh, oh exactly. like i'd like the skin which is not helpful I, at all uh, of course and it's it's yeah. extreme again I, I get why they're doing it i can rationalize it but it doesn't make it any more fun for me as the founder so you're like getting rejection after rejection after rejection and then you have to pick yourself up two minutes later to, to give this pitch with more energy and it's emotionally exhausting. And, and, you know, it was a really difficult time to get through, but I found what helped me was just changing my mindset around the situation and thinking that like, you know, this isn't a binary outcome. If an investor at the end of the call doesn't invest, it's not me that's failed. This is me getting to start building up that track, track record at such an early point in my career. The fact that I'm even in a position where I run a company that's doing well, I'm in a position to be asking investors and having these guys take me seriously because I know in no other career path at this stage of my career would I even get time with some of these people for a full hour where they're like interested in me. You know, when I look at it that way, it's like whether they invest today or not, the fact that I'm given the opportunity at the age of 22 to start building that track record of my own is a huge privilege. And if I look at it that way, like, again, it doesn't matter what happens in this round because I know that I'm the cheapest person on the earth and I will find a way to make clear work by spending as little money possible. Mm -hmm. So even if we don't fundraise really well, like the company is not going to die. And it was looking at it that way, which I think helped me. And ironically, I think made me <laughs> my hit rate better with investors because mm -hmm. it comes across when you're desperate, when you're stressed, when you want to strangle someone, they can tell. So when I like took a chill pill, like relaxed and was like, you know what, I'm going to make this work. Yeah. You can be in or out. It's your choice. That, that worked better. Did you negotiate the term sheets? No. So, so we raised on safes and, and because it's a valuation cap, like the investor's risk is kind of already hedged. Um, so it was more just that like we said what we were raising and, and we're very transparent about that. We did have main, so no, no US or Asian investor was ever like worried about the valuation. But some UK and European investors didn't want to take meetings because they knew that we were a YC company and, and hence like, and YC companies tend to have 
as they see it, inflated valuations. Right. So, but again, like you, you can't always trust the reason that mm -hmm. someone gives you when they say no. So, yeah. So where is Clear now, and and what are you planning to do with with the eight hundred thousand? Yeah. So so we're at around um, I think six hundred. 6,400 users worldwide. Uh, and that's still been, been like purely organic growth. And the key priority is really getting to product market fit now. So, so we know that we're onto something and every month, like the user feedback gets better, brands send me free skincare, which is like a dream. Like the fact that yeah. I've somehow built enough credibility that like they, they want to share stuff is, is insane. But it's things like that that signal that we're getting closer and closer. But we're still not there yet. And there are still problems with the platform. Um, like we, we've noticed that there are like troughs in, in retention sometimes. And like we, we notice when certain users like don't do certain things. For example, if they never find the diary and the onboarding process isn't very good. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't like prompt you to do anything that they are the ones that don't tend to stick around. And we also know there's like not much instant gratification. We know that people want to see like some basic facial analysis. And so th th there's a lot more work that we know we need to do on the product side. And again, it's an iterative process. We, we launch features, big features every two weeks and we test, we see has this improved retention? Has it made it better? Has it made it worse? And, and so even though of course, like more users is always better, the growth isn't really a concern at the moment because we've managed to gain like new users every day mm -hmm. despite not doing very much on like marketing and user acquisition. What we're trying to do is build, I mean, like we're building growth into the product. So features playing on behaviors that we know people already do, but there's no point acquiring users if they're just going to churn. So that's why number one priority is product. What that comes down to is tech. Mm -hmm. um, so in October, we did another big deep dive with like, our existing user base with new users going back, testing some of those initial assumptions. We put together this monster 25-page product roadmap with all the key features that we need to add in the next six months. And after that, like the goal is to build the best like skincare app there is. Like for someone who is into skincare, what can we build that will scratch every itch that they have? And and we feel like at the end of this roadmap, we will be there. Or if we're not, then we have to do the process again. Mm -hmm. We have to go back to our users, keep on iterating. And so the biggest constraint was was tech and was speed because it was still me and my co-founder, bless us, ch chugging along, you know, yeah. never signing up to yeah. write code, still doing all the code. So so the money's primarily gone to growing the team and specifically engineers. So we're now a team of six and we're very spread out. So we have a back-end engineer based out of Canada. We have uh, a new uh, new joiner who's doing full stack development. He's in Korea. He also actually studied physics at Imperial mm. though, which is very a strange yeah. coincidence. Um, we have a UX designer. She's based out of um, Sydney and uh, a front-end engineer in Singapore. And then me and, me and Ben. So all five of them are now like all on tech and I have moved away because as I said, we need to continue on the business business model itself we need to make money one day and, and you know all of the like investor relationships we, we are doing like some social media stuff we're not putting money into it mm -hmm. but to start that brand building we are a consumer facing brand that's and it's free money. for now it will always be free the point is not to charge people mm -hmm. the way that we make money is through partnerships with brands and again it's not for advertising the whole problem with skincare is that it's too marketed and people are being sold stuff that don't actually work what we want to do is make the skincare industry actually more innovative and sustainable by providing them with the infrastructure to understand how people are using their products and what actually works. So by, it's kind of similar to what Strava do in the sense that they have data on like which cycle routes people do or like where people are running at certain times. And they feed that data back to like city planners to know where do we put lighting or like where is there a high rate of crime that we need more police force. So it's a similar concept for us that like we can 
see how, you know, if someone stops using a product, what do they replace mm -hmm. it with? Or how long is it on their wish list before they make a purchase? Or are users suddenly adding products with niacinamide to their fails? Like, is there something like a trend going on with this mm -hmm. ingredient that we can then help skincare brands actually like get these insights? Because currently it's the, the way that they do it is through large scale market research studies, which cost around 200 grand a year, meaning that small skincare brands cannot do it. Mm -hmm. And they're normally the ones that are trying to innovate, try and do good for the yeah. community. And then the large skincare brands, it's still expensive. And, you know, why do that when it's actually cheaper just to launch a whole new product line and hope it works out? And that's why the industry is so sustainable, because if a brand launch doesn't do well, the solution is not to understand why. The solution is to just try again and hope it works out. So there are more and more products polluting the mm -hmm. market. None of them really work. There's no key, like real differences in the formulation. But if we can provide brands with that real-time access in a, obviously a much cheaper manner and provide not just the big brands, but also the small brands, they can iterate their formulations and their products like how we iterate software rather than imagine if we built an app, it didn't mm -hmm. work and then we scrapped it out. And then if that didn't work, you start from scratch. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. So, so the idea is to provide them with the infrastructure, but of course we, we charge for it. And then that's how we make money. And you will also make product, product recommendations to people. So, so actually now we don't just because again, what we found is that even if we as that like platform made a recommendation, the first thing someone will want to do is then like Google it and look at the reviews on yeah. the product. They will never like blindly just trust it. Yeah. And until we actually have the data set to make high quality recommendations, it's not us, it's not worth us losing credibility as a platform because I the last thing I want to do is have people trust in an app and it makes a recommendation for them that I'm not confident in. And and right now where we're at, I'm not I'm not confident. And I would rather have this like transparency where the way people figure out what to use is through looking at what other people are using and providing them with like the, the learning and the insights that they can make a more informed decision. And only when I have the confidence that we can make really solid recommendations is that going to be mm -hmm. in the product roadmap. I mean, it's one of my issues. I use Shiseido, which yeah. is a Japanese brand. Yeah. And the reason why I use that is because I look at all the Japanese people yeah. and I'm like, wow, they have a great skin. Yeah. I better use their products. Yeah. But I have no idea if it actually works on my skin or not. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, your app definitely serves serve this problem. Yeah, I Amazing. think so. Cool. Uh, well, do you have any advice for aspiring founders, aspiring startup founders? Yeah, I mean... Any, I any last points? I think, you know, be, being a founder, that there's a lot of fun that comes with, with the job um, in the sense that I like you learn so much about every, like things that you didn't need, realize yeah. that you needed to learn about. And that's amazing. Like you, I think from a personal growth standpoint, it's a fantastic job, but there are huge downsides as well. Like it is extraordinarily stressful. You don't get like holidays or perks or any of that kind of stuff. If something goes wrong, it's your responsibility. So the highs are high, the lows are low. And and, and it's it, it's it's very personal, right? Like it's everything you've been working towards for, for Lord knows how long. And there will always be stakeholders that are unhappy or pressuring you, whether that's users not liking a feature or investors being unhappy with you or a brand not wanting to partner with you. So I think that rejection is like a massive part of the process. And keep in mind, like, yes, we got into YC. I applied for every accelerator before that, including ones at Imperial and mm. was rejected from literally everything. Wow. So like, <laughs> I mean, I'm not complaining the, I'm, that we got into YC. Yeah. It's a fantastic opportunity. But the point is to get there, like when it came to getting those initial users, 
I had so many people ignore my messages or like get angry at me for mm -hmm. messaging them. Like we've had brands say no to us and like, you know, th things have happened. I've had so many investor rejections, but it's all part of the learning process. So you have to just be resilient. Equally, there is a fine line with like accepting rejection, but knowing you're on the right path. Mm -hmm to understanding when it's time to stop or when it's time to do something different. And, and with Quill, that was you know, that was the case. And I think that was 100% the right decision that we decided to stop it there. Mm -hmm. You know, you can be resilient. We could have kept pushing, but did it logically make sense to? No, I, I, I don't think it did. So it's also about balance, balancing that honesty aspect of being honest with yourself. Do you feel like this is the right time for you? Do you feel like you have the skill set? Do you feel like, you know... Do you care enough about yeah, the problem? Yeah, exactly. Like, is this something you actually want to devote your yeah. like life's work to? Do you want to spend every hour of every day talking to people who are going through this problem? Like, it's it's a very consuming job and it's not for everyone, is my learning. So I think my advice to people who are early on in their careers is to get an internship in a startup. Like, I think the best way of knowing if something is for you is trying it. And if the answer is no, that's okay. Like, that's the point of an internship. And if you do feel like you have the skill set, you know, I, I'm not a proponent of just dropping out your of your degree and, like, taking a massive risk. But get yourself, and it's a fortunate position to be in, but try to get yourself in a position where it's not a risk. Mm -hmm. Like, try and de-risk it for yourself as much as you can, whether that means being an expert in the field that you're working in mm -hmm. or having some kind of tangible advantage that's going to make your startup successful. Mm -hmm. I think is is what I would say. Are you hiring right now? We're not hiring at the moment, unfortunately. Any unpaid internship positions? <laughs> no, sorry. <laughs> is not there any moment. way uh, people can get in touch with you if they have, you know, if they need advice on YC applications or yeah. anything else? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, you can feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn, um, on on Twitter on email ahana at getclearapp.com i have a youtube channel where i am building clear in public and and you know it's it's meant to be educational as well and explain some of these things that are quite inaccessible pieces of information about like fundraising and like angels versus mm -hmm. vcs that kind of content so you can go subscribe to my youtube channel but I'm, i'm always my dms are always open i think some of the most the best opportunities and the best people i've met have been through kind of seemingly random social media connections you included yeah you yeah um and so so yeah feel free to, to reach out if there's there's any way that i can be helpful amazing well it was a great chat thank you so much thank you lucy really really enjoyed it Thank you for listening to this discussion. If you enjoyed it, make sure to follow the podcast to hear about new episodes. You can also find me on Instagram or Twitter under Think with Lucy. Let's highlight the gray area that is often overlooked. Let's show nuance. Let's think.